Bruce Taylor was twice recipient of the A.N. Klein Award for his earlier poetry collections Cold Rubber Feet, 1987, and Facts, 1998. More recently, his poems have appeared in the New Quarterly, The Fiddlehead, and Literary Review of Canada, and have been featured on CBC. He lives in Wakefield, Quebec, with his wife and three children. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. We're here to talk about your latest book called No End in Strangeness, New and Selected Poems. And speaking of strangeness, the cover, I understand you took that photograph in a pond somewhere. Yeah, that's a a still from a a pond, from a video of some uh, microscopic organisms that I found in a pond down the road from where I live. This one's a, a hydra, hydra viridis, done in dark field, which means that, that the, um, the image is illuminated uh, with scattered light, and it appears on a, on a black background, uh, which is actually something that I brought up in one of the poems. One of the lengthier poems in the book, or at least among the new poems, is a discussion of a, a Dutchman who shared your interest in tiny organisms. Yeah, the fir- he was the first, a- Anthony von Leeuwenhoek, he was the first person to uh, discover that there were things in your drinking water, little, little wriggly things. Curled like a great cascading periwig over the cantered roof tiles of Delft. That's an example to me of a, a great way that you used language in these poems. You thought about this person, mm-hmm. you connected with him somehow, and then you recruited language to... A lot of poets talk about uh, enjoying the sounds of language, but I, 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 I wrote a piece recently for um, the New Quarterly about, uh, about poetry and, and my interest in it, how I got started in it, uh, and, and a point that I made there was, was that poetry, uh, at least for me, is written um, as much for the mouth as for the, um, as for the ears. So what I'm looking for in, in a line, usually, is a good feeling when you say it. Um, it, it has to feel right in the mouth, which means the, the vowels have to come in the right order and the consonants can't be unpronounceable, and it has to be a pleasure to say, which hopefully means that it will also be pleasurable to hear. That's mostly what I'm looking for in, in the poetry, line by line. What I love about it is the fact that most people can't do this. They can't do it as well as you can do it. So there's a, I don't know if it's envy or if it's respect, it impresses me, mm. and I marvel at it. I'm trying to do that less. Uh, you, you, might, you might have noticed that some of the, the newer poems are less artful than some of the older ones. Um, there, there's less uh, ver- verbal virtuosity in the newer poems. Um, I'm more interested in, in what I'm saying than in how I'm saying it, hopefully not uh, to the detriment of the sound and the uh, and the shape of the line, uh, I still try to write in strong lines, but I'm I'm much less likely to uh, rhyme indiscriminately. And although there's a fair bit of that in the newer stuff as well, it, it strikes me that this this collection is very evenly balanced. There's a there's a good sense of the content. The language sticks out. I think there's also humor, which. Robert Fulford once told me was one of his key criteria for bestowing his approval. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, you you talk here about in the same poem a pope-faced turtle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and ho- hopefully, other people can visualize what what I'm picturing when <laughs> when I say that humor uh, is one of those things that's been hived off 
from poetry and, and made to stand on its own. Stand-up comedians are doing a, a kind of a free-form poetry, verbal performance. Um, other things have also been split off from what should be the proper domain of poetry, including, in many cases, uh, rhyme and uh, well, sc uh, scanned metrical verse, which has largely been given over to, to song in modern poetry. Uh, and I, I'd like to claim all of that for the poem. Uh, anything, anything that you can say or write uh, is allowed to be in there. I, I don't mind telling uh, jokes in the poems. And again, I think that's a, a characteristic of really good work, regardless of what genre it takes. It's also, a, you know, in just human relationships, it's a pretty good way of judging how smart someone is, I think. Mm. Yeah, if, if if their jokes are funny, yeah. that's yeah. right. If they're not, yeah. just tells yeah. you the opposite, I guess. Yeah, there's a there's a, often an uncomfortable moment in a poetry reading when a, when a joke gets told and then the audience has to laugh. And there's a sort of a, a sound that goes through the room that that could be taken for laughter. I tend to read too fast to avoid those moments in my own work. I don't want uh, uh, I don't want an embarrassing pause when the laugh doesn't come. And yet, humor has so much to do with timing and pauses yes. and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Hopefully uh, some of that gets into the poetry. The, the timing is very important to me uh, in music as, as well as uh, poetry and, and in prose too. Later on down the, the same stanza you talk about a private wilderness but the air here is not quiet, it is shrill with sacks. The unceasing imperious loud need of these tree frogs insisting on sex. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably thinking of Aristophanes there. <laughs> At the frogs, yes. Yeah. 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 For the clouds Rekha, later on. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but, but my interest in that line has as much to do with the sounds in it as anything else. The, uh, yeah. Loud need pleases me. I, I like that combination of, uh, of sounds. What we're touching on, I think, is is why your poems are so good. Poets typically don't want to analyze their the the, so the reasons for their success in front of the world. I don't want to be conscripted to a, a conversation about why I'm so great. <laughs> that would be a, a difficult conversation for me to have. But I can tell you what I'm trying to do. Right. I'm not typically sycophantic, believe me. I'm telling you, on the receiving end, uh, I had a great deal of fun reading these. We could get then to, to content, and I've got to focus on the new poems. There seemed to be a theme that dealt with age and the past and the future, the fact that we're beetles and worms and tubes. Mm. I wonder if you could speak to that. I began writing poetry as a, a dualist. I was reading a lot of Yeats when I was young. I was interested in this spirit and how it was embodied in the things of the world. And then somehow in the course of my life I've turned into something very different, something more like an Epicurean materialist um, who's interested in, in substance and, uh, and biology and the story of how we, we are what we are. Here you talk about crawling like a short-armed beetle on the battered metal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a, there, I think there's a lot of bug imagery in these poems. Yeah, um, it's almost a sense of helplessness, not futility, but that we're just like little specks that can be flicked around and 
Mm -hmm. That for me is a liberating realization. And I mentioned before that that I that I started out as a as a dualist, really rejecting the world uh, and looking for something better than it, something superior to it, and then I've ended up as somebody who um, is more like a pantheist, I guess, a person who feels worshipful about reality, about the things that that are as they are, and is amazed by them. There's a beautiful little passage where you talk about. Uh, in, in several cases, poets. There's one about an idyllic perception of the poet. Then you say, well, what better way to spend time than creating imaginative worlds? Seamus Haney, I think, he said that poetry is essentially a solitary activity. Of course, this kind of poetry, just as we as we well know, there are many kinds. Uh, there will be some spoken word poetry at the Verse Fest uh, event this week, I'm sure. And that's a different uh, kettle of fish. The kind of poetry that I write begins in solitude. The writing process always starts there. Yeah, well, it starts also from other from eavesdropping on other people's solitude, yeah. from listening to the, to what what came to them in their quiet moments. That poem is a celebration of reading as much as anything, and and of the way that poetry comes out of reading, and somehow comes back to life and life comes back into the poem and all these things go round and round that's what I'm trying to do in that poem A little goat is captivated by a book too small to read the title of and look how he holds it his book exactly as I hold mine his head a little tilted one hand propping up his chin a picture of perfect absorption a picture of life at its best because what else is there to do in paradise but loaf beneath a tree and dream of other worlds? Mm. Yeah. What about going out and actually living? Yeah, I do some of that. Actually, that's mostly what I do, like most people. I don't, I don't actually write that much poetry. I don't write that often. Living is mostly what I do. Mostly I'm taking care of the kids and so on. But then there are these, there's this feeling that comes over you when you stop think and reflect and look back on, um, on things and that's the feeling in which poems come to me and it's the feeling you get sometimes reading something that's very in, engrossing very absorbing I think it was Auden who said happiness is absorption and uh, and, and I feel that strongly uh, whether I'm absorbed in making a, a guitar or a, or, or a boat or, or a poem it's the the quiet moment of making that gives me pleasure and then I keep wanting to return to. You know, I feel exactly that the same way about editing interviews. Mm -hmm. You're in a space that is completely mm -hmm. involving and nothing else really registers. Yeah, editing is great fun. I edit um, little films sometimes and, uh, and get exactly that feeling. One of the things that strikes me about this collection is, is all of the metaphors and so when I turn to your poem uh, dead metaphor and read the lines at last I have to concede that these things will never be more than what they are I suppose that takes us back to your world view again mm -hmm. of, of biologist and yeah uh, I think what I'm trying to do there is 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 identify the moment where you don't feel a need to resuscitate the things of the world to animate them with metaphor and to pump poetry and into them and make them make them come alive because they already are what they are and and, uh, and, and that's where the poetry is particularly that's not a, an exuberant sort of poem um, it's a it's a poem about 
quiet afternoons. There's another line about looking into the future, looking at the fan blades. Does the future frighten you? It's, it, it, well, I think I'm not the only one who, who feels that, that, that he's being pushed from behind into he doesn't know what, and there's no stopping it. Uh, it's coming, whether we want it or not. <laughs> it's, that poem mm. is about an imagined future, followed by a, a rather alarming image of the real future that we're pushed into. We are all, in any case, tube things organized with hunger at one end and dispossession at the other. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a pretty biological view of... Yeah, that's not, it's not entirely a, a pleasant image. Um, when I think about it, there is a certain note of hysteria in some of those poems. That, that there's fear of the biological as well as a, an, a, an attempt to celebrate it. There's a, a alarm at biological processes. There's a poem about my heart, and there's a poem about getting older, and then there's a poem about digestion, and <laughs> there's, a, there's a sort of uh, preoccupation with processes over which we have no control. There's also um, an attempt to to feel them deeply and uh, and see them. At the end of that same poem, Life Science... One loves a helpless child, pretending to be wise for its sake, giving it not just sustenance, but guidance, teaching it the way to be alive. So it's almost as if we're here just to perpetuate the species. In one uh, sense, yeah. Uh, what, what I was thinking of when I wrote that poem was, was the pose we have to put on in a way uh, part part of being human is is to want to be more than human it's want to, to want to be better than we are part of raising children is to want to uh, make them something to give them the best of yourself to be something better than you are for their sake mm-hmm. and um, or to be happy at least yeah the line that got left out of that poem identified that missing thing as the soul because I want to reserve a space for it um, while not dividing the world up into spirit and matter I, I want to have space for uh, nebulous um, things like, like, like the human spirit anyway I, I'm not going to give it up and that poem is trying to, to find a, a, a small place for that vision in the midst of a more materialist uh, vision a purely biological vision really you call the man the, the great plucked hen that styles itself, itself as a man. Diogenes. How do you feel? You've, you've produced the poems, and you want people to read them, I'm assuming. Mm. How do you feel about me kind of picking away at them? I, I like it, uh, because uh, it makes me see things that weren't there before. And I've spent a lot of time with these already, so... Um, uh, I kind of enjoy revisiting them. That they they are the way I wanted them to be, more or less. There's only a few things in there that I that I wince at when I read it. I've spent some time with these, and so it's it's kind of a pleasure to go back over them with somebody. It's like having seen a a film, and uh, I get the same pleasure talking about my own work as I would going over a movie that I've just seen. Yeah, because you've polished it, you've turned it into what you're pleased with, mm-hmm. you've put it out into the world. So it's, it is an entity unto itself. Yeah. I don't mind talking about the poetry that way at all. Partly I, I have a background as a, an academic, and, and I've done enough book reviewing to be able to take some distance on my own work. Here's something that you've written, uh, a poem called Stuffing, 
but toward the end of the last stanza you say, but I noticed I have brought along my notepad to record the mayhem and observe my own extremely small, in fact, barely detectable feeling of transgression. What a precious thing that little feeling is. Look how it perches on my shoulder, nodding and chirping while I smash the couch. And that poem's about, uh, about taking apart a, an object that's uh, acquired some sentimental value, the family couch that people have slept on for years. And, uh, and then, of course, I take a crowbar to it and smash it up in order to make it uh, small enough to be taken away with the trash. Part of me feels like the, I, I ought to uh, commemorate the sentimental feelings you have doing something like that. And part of me also feels the artifice of that stance and the layeredness of experience where you're just doing a, a, a simple physical thing, taking, taking a couch apart with a crowbar while watching it from, from a distance and, and commenting on it and thinking about it and planning to write a poem about it later and then actually writing a poem about it later. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's like living your life, but it's, it's also living it with the intention of, of reliving it and repackaging it into yeah. something that's there for other people. Yeah, poetry for me is largely, partly at least, a meditation on layeredness, um, on the return to experiences. When Wordsworth talked about poetry being uh, strong emotion recollected and tranquility it, mm. well it's that but it, there, there are more layers than that other people will come along and churn the poem up again and then layer it back into itself and then new things and experiences feed into it and partly the poem like the language is a midden in which all those things are concealed and going through them and finding things that that are of interest is part of the the fun for me of writing well, and, and part of the fun for the reader, I mean, you don't have to know. It's it's almost like operating a computer. I know how to operate the computer to the extent that I can do things that I want to do with it, but I just know there's a ton of other things that it could be doing that I'm not aware of. It's not frustration because you get a lot of pleasure out of it, but when I sit down with you, I want to, I want to find out, well, what are you doing? What tricks are you playing to try and get me to feel good on the surface? So what tricks are you playing? <laughs> you do use a lot of rhyme and mm -hmm. assonance and, and alliteration. And I, I get called a formalist fairly frequently in reviews, but uh, I repudiate that word. If you look at these, you'll find almost none of them are written in forms. There, 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 there might be one or two that, that use quatrains here and there. Mostly they're, they're, they're free form with a lot of rhyme in them. I mean, th these lines scan mostly, but there's never uh, an attempt to fill a pre-existing form, which is maybe a, an unimportant distinction, but it's one that I insist on for some reason. Maybe because a lot of the poetry that attempts to do that doesn't please me. A, a lot of formalist poetry uh, crowbarred into that form because yeah, of it, the form rather than... It can feel that way. I've been accused of that myself, actually. Of doing that. Yeah. Um, but at its best... You don't feel a form at all. In a Philip Larkin poem, you don't really think about the form that much. No. The poem flows so beautifully. The fact that it's uh, architecturally perfect is just one of its many miraculous attributes. <laughs> well, it's something for the scholars. Yeah, and uh, and something to appreciate visually on the page while you're, re you're reading it, and uh, which is a very different experience. A Richard Wilbur poem will have the same effect often, but a lot of formal poetry doesn't. So I, I don't think of myself as a formalist at all. 
if you were to use form by just dint of the fact that you're using it does that help you get your message across because that form has succeeded in helping others throughout the centuries deliver that message yeah but you seem to be rejecting that I, I don't write villanelles and I don't write Sestinas um, uh, and I, I haven't really I've tried the odd sonnet um, just for the hell of it because it's sort of like a game it's yeah a little bit yeah opposed to thinking well you know what if I do it that way that will help me to get a powerful message across mm -hmm. I don't write that way it's not a successful strategy for me um, it works much better if I just try to say say what I want to say or or more to the point if I just lie and wait and hence and what I want to say will come to me sometimes it comes in a couplet and it will sound like formal poetry. Often if I read these aloud, um, they will sound like, like I'm reading a formal structured piece of work. I guess there may be, if, if there is a form there, it's more like the, the form of the ode, this sort of semi-freeform uh, scanning metrical changeable form. That line by line, there, there are rhythms that you could write out that are fairly obvious. That there's a pattern that you can discern? That there's Anapests and iams and all the things that go into into making traditional lines of poetry. Um, I, I use those quite freely. They're I there, but they're not in any kind of overarching structure. Then. No, and I mix them in with a lot of very uh, unrhythmical free verse. I use them almost like a, a condiment sometimes. Yes. <laughs> Damp and bosomy luxuriance of lilacs and feral roses. Now that's the language. That's I admire that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, that church that I'm thinking of there was in Britannia, in, uh, in Ottawa. And you wanted to see what kind of glory had been boarded up in there. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Bruce Taylor, who is the author, most recently, of No End in Strangeness, New and Selected Poems, published by Cormorant Books. This is a difficult area and it's just talking about the relative merit of poems when you read a poem the typical reader will say i like that or i don't like that and i suppose when enough people say i like that then it goes to anthology which doesn't necessarily mean that 20 years down 100 years down the road someone may disagree and uh, either attack it or champion it. Well, and they get sorted according to who likes the, the poem. Some some poems make it into some anthologies and some make it into others. The, the book I, I grew up with, as I was writing in this essay that I wrote recently, um, was, was a book of best-loved poems. And they, they included things like My Darling Clementine and, and The Man in the Flying Trapeze, as well as Robert Frost and, and little bits of Shakespeare. None of that stuff gets taught in school. None of that belongs to the canon. You know, when you think of taste, well, what is taste if not trying to define why you like something or why you don't like something? Trying to put words to feeling in a way like mm -hmm. poetry does. Mm -hmm. And yet, when people do that, there's all sorts of mayhem. Mm -hmm. There's all sorts of concern about expressing likes and dislikes. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's particular to Canada or not, but... I just wonder if it has to do with a small pond, speaking of ponds, or what? Well, I'm not sure what exactly you're saying. 
your poems, I like them because I can understand them to a good extent. Mm -hmm. And there's poetry out there that the only person that understands them is the poet, it mm -hmm. seems. And yet, often... And I, you know, I'm, I'm going on a fairly familiar rant here. Mm -hmm. That often other poets will rave about poetry that doesn't make sense. Yeah, and well, it doesn't display the kind of intelligent, beautiful use of language that what I think good poetry mm -hmm. displays. I want to deflect that a little bit because I think that most of us actually have an appetite for poetry that doesn't make sense, but it has to make the right kind of nonsense. Most of us like nonsense poetry. We grew up with the Song of Sixpence. People who like their poetry to make sense will often like Theodore Retke, for example, who doesn't make much sense a lot of the time, or Dylan Thomas, who often makes no sense at all. But they make the, the, the kind of nonsense that, uh, um, that somehow fits well with a certain kind of poetic preference. Well, There's another kind of nonsense that, that's, that's just irritating, and that's the kind I, I hope never to write. Um, what kind, for example? I don't want to name names. <laughs> We'd get into trouble, but uh, there. Well, let's say from the past, then. Well, most of the stuff from the past that made the wrong kind of sense didn't survive, so I don't know about it. Okay. It's long gone. <laughs> a lot of stuff still in circulation nowadays that doesn't mean anything to me, and it doesn't try to mean anything to me, and I don't. I don't care about it enough to to work at it. Um, and then there are things that ought to feel that way and don't. The um, things that ought to be nonsensical that other people have rejected as nonsensical, I can read with, with considerable pleasure. So it is very much a personal judgment, and time will separate the right kind of nonsense from the wrong kind eventually. Poetry doesn't have to make sense, but it, it, has, to do un it has to do something. Mm -hmm. it, if it doesn't make sense, then it has to be, in my estimation, beautiful, or it has to right. have that capacity to the, the wow me mm -hmm. or whatever it might happen to be but if it's just doesn't make sense and it, it doesn't have any of the other attributes mm -hmm. why do people uh, praise it so extravagantly mm -hmm. well it's a it's a very conscious choice the, the language poet charles uh, bernstein makes a slightly different distinction he he, he talks about poetry that's uh, absorbing as opposed to poetry that's not and uh, and he's a very much in favor of the kind that's not, he rejects the state of mind that you're in when you're when you're absorbed in something. And I think I've already defended it in this conversation. Yeah. I'm very much on on the side of being uh, absorbed in what you're reading. I, I, I would like to I would like anyone who reads my poetry to be absorbed by it. I don't try to avoid using the kinds of tricks that and rhetoric that make that easy for the reader. Memorable. Um, yeah, I try to make this the you know I try to make the poetry memorable speech to quote the memorable phrase as much as I can, and if I succeed, then I'm I'm much happier than if I write something that's difficult and interesting and rewards study, but doesn't feel absorbing while while you're reading it. It's not a very uh, hip stance to be in favor of absorption, which is just how it is for me where I am. Well, I'm glad you're not just trying to be, trying to be hip for the sake of being well, hip. I, I, at one time, I guess I was. The concern, again, is after a certain amount of study of the words and an attempt to either get an understanding or to squeeze beauty out of it, if you've given it an effort and 
you can't get anywhere. You're left with this sense of irritation. Auden, as you may recall, came up with a list of things that the critic should and shouldn't do. And one of them is, if you feel concerned that the poet's being unduly praised and will affect future generations of poets because of this, detrimentally, don't talk about it. That's what he advises. Because typically when you're writing a, a negative review, you're showing off. Mm-hmm. I've done that. But as I say, it's is there poetry right now out there that you dislike? And do you share my concern that people are praising poetry that may not be worthy of that praise? Well, I, I can't share it because there's, I have too much overlap with the things that other people dislike. There are too many things that I, that, that I like that other people dislike. Uh, for example, one of these rather difficult and non-absorbing works of poetry came to me a number of years ago, and I read it with considerable interest and pleasure and praised it to a friend who went out and bought it and then was angry with me because he'd spent money on this book of poetry. I told him about one line that I thought was a very strong line, and he decided that that, that was the only one that in the whole book that he liked. It's like and buying a, buying an album with that has one song on it. And yeah, the rest is... and he felt cheated. Yeah. But uh, but since then I've gone back and reread that same book uh, with the same pleasure that I felt the first time. Um, so it it reached me and agreed with me somehow. What's the book? I don't want to name names. I really don't. It's a small world in Canadian poetry. No, but you're being positive about the book. You are, though, aren't you? I am. I'm being yeah. positive, but I don't want to spread gossip. Just I will with the microphones off. I'm not trying to spread gossip here, no, though. But, I'm uh, just trying to have honest reactions to work out there. Because if it's dishonest, just because you want to get a gig somewhere else, uh, you know, then... Well, that one's interesting, the wanting to get a gig. Because uh, that, that does tie in with one of my, uh, my peeves, if you will. It becomes possible to have a kind of career as a poet. You can be a professional poet after a fashion in Canada. If you make books often and read wherever they'll have you, and and I, I, you know, I'm one to talk, so I, I usually don't say no when I'm asked to do something. But I don't actively seek out. I, I, it's been years since I've sent something out spontaneously to a magazine or or whatever. I've taken very few steps on my own behalf, right. <laughs> which is why. Uh, uh, I was amazed to discover nobody had ever heard of me. <laughs> it surprised me. When was that? Well, it's, it's come up in, in more than one review recently. I tried at one point to have a, a poetry career and a teaching career that went with it and took a different path. And I can't say that I regret it. I, I write poems uh, as well as I can, but I'm not cultivating a career. And, uh, and I don't think that is a bad thing for me. Whether it's a bad thing for other people or not, I'd, I'd be reluctant to say with the microphones on. So the, the cultivation of a career getting in the way of producing good poetry. Yeah. Well, it, or producing for the sake of producing. You sort of have to produce often, consistently. Uh, you have to put out a book fairly frequently um, and keep yourself noticed if you want to, to have a career as a poet. Um, I find, though, that the better poets are the ones that don't publish that often. Yeah, yeah. That's the path I took. I, I do try to write as well as I can when I'm actually writing, but uh, uh, but I, it's not the only thing I do. What else do you do? I, I build things. I, I, I build guitars. I build uh, I build boats. I, uh, I make furniture. I raise children. <laughs> I, <laughs> you build children. I build children. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and I drive constantly. <laughs> Martin Amos says poets don't drive, but I'm living proof that they do, that they have to. <laughs> you're, you're a taxi driver. Yeah, well, I, for the my, kids. For the kids, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And what that's about. I know you're reluctant to talk specifically about any particular uh, poets, but I'm going to ask you anyway, primarily because I want to learn what you like and mm-hmm. why. Okay, I, I, I'm a, a tremendous admirer of Don Mackay. I find him uh, enormously inventive and, and always entertaining. Uh, because he's humorous? N- not just because he's humorous. He, he has a, a metaphorical imagination that, that agrees with me very well. I know what he's saying when he's saying it, and, and I feel it. I feel it deeply. There's a poem he writes somewhere about not wanting to go to work, and he imagines leaving his dog lying on the kitchen floor by the hot wood stove while he goes off to, to earn a living, and the dog is just lying there asleep and dreaming, he says, of I'm going to get the line wrong if I try to remember it, but sure, it's yeah. basically a tropical blue ocean speckled with islands, and, and it's like flying an airplane over the tropics in the dog's dreams, which is an extraordinary stretch, almost impossible, but very vivid, and it works extremely well. And it's his ability to draw the thread so fine without losing it that I admire very much. Mm-hmm. So he's one of the poets that I, that I would definitely put among my favorites in Canadian poetry. So uh, it's almost outrageous then, but it's not quite. It's not to dissolve into nonsense or ir- irrelevance or silliness, but it, it doesn't at all. Incidentally, you, in one of your poems, you talk about poets sleeping until noon, I think, don't you? <laughs> oh, yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, I value my sleep. Okay, so that's very useful and helpful. The fact that what you admire is, is a connection between words and ideas and images that is almost impossible, but something holds it together. That's what I learned yeah. in Don Mackay, or yeah. Mackay, I guess it's Mackay, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. Don Coles is another poet in a total, totally different idiom that I, I admire. I like his, his conversational manner, his sort of broad, humane view of the world, and is willing to, to talk at length, ramble really. He, he rambles in a lot of his poetry, but, but there are moments of incisiveness embedded in the garrulous uh, drift of his poetry. Uh, he's another one I admire very much. I have broad tastes in poetry. I, I, I have a lot of time for Charles Bukowski, for example, uh, or um, um, people who are sometimes, you know, people who probably won't get put in future editions of Harold Bloom's Western Canon. Um, I, I have a lot of time for, provided they're interesting people to read. Yeah, uh, interesting is another key concept. Uh, yeah. Absorbing. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Who, who do you think is overrated? Um, it might take me a minute to think about that. Again, some of the people that I think are overrated are people I know. Um, I don't want to name them. Well, poets from the past were overrated. I think Ezra Pound was horribly overrated. Mm-hmm. I went back and reread Pound. Uh, I still read the other high moderns with pleasure. I think Eliot was wonderful. I go back and read Pound, and, and it feels juvenile. Better editor than anything else, I suppose. I'm sure he was a, a fine editor, although I, I I won't be sure of that either until I have another look at, at the editing he did. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe he cut some good stuff out of the wasteland. I haven't really examined that closely. But I went back, and I, I tried very hard to like Ezra Pound, convinced myself that I did and uh, read the cantos uh, forward to back kind of skimmed the Chinese parts (laughs) (laughs) and uh, but then I revisited those uh, just a few months ago I was kind of 
shocked actually at how, how bad they were. A lot of them were, especially the earlier things from Personae. And so why are they bad? It's the the person inside them and the poses he's putting on, his aggressive uh, dismissal of uh, people who who weren't like him, who didn't like things he liked, his uh, his anger at it, he's like an angry adolescent until well into his thirties, and and his later stuff has moments of wonderful clarity and lucidity. I can you know everyone like certain passages in the Pisan Cantos and I can see why there's a pathos to, to that situation that almost makes him good poetry before he's written a single word. He's locked up in a cage and he's been wrong his whole life long and he's, he's just coming to realize that those sections of the Cantos can be quite moving and of course the later ones where he realizes his work was a botch or a, I like those because I agree with it. His work was a terrible botch. Even his friend Basil Bunting, the best thing you could say about mm. it was, was there are the Alps. It doesn't say those are good Alps. <laughs> the, the best Alps we could build. They, it's not the Cathedral of Chartres. So there's a poet that I would say was overrated. I could spend a lot more words saying it. Well, just finally, uh, you write poetry to relive certain things or get a better understanding of them to produce something that's memorable and beautiful and yeah immortal yeah I try to make a thing that will last that's for sure oddly sometimes to make that feeling work you can't be trying to be immemorial in every line uh, you have to be casual and create a feeling of ephemerality and then somehow make it worth returning to yeah last question what makes you happiest in the world I'm happiest when I'm when I'm uh, working on a project of some kind I'm happiest planing a piece of wood uh, or um, assembling the mosaic rosette of a guitar or revisiting a poem that I that I've written and uh, and already like uh, and have just thought of some ways to improve. Those things make me very happy when I'm doing them. So being productive makes me happy. And then uh, uh, the usual things, I guess, the, uh, the sound of water, the, uh, the, the wind. Um, I should say that, that, uh, that my family makes me happy, but, uh, but it's far too complicated. <laughs> it would take novels after <laughs> would take any, any number of novels to explain the way in which my family uh, makes me happy or doesn't so opportunities for for dissatisfaction or satisfaction or both at once or what was it the Tolstoy said he said there's sort of one explanation for why families are happy but thousands of why they're unhappy yeah that's right yes um, I was probably thinking of that so there is a conventional trope where where, where you're asked what, what it is that, you, that gives you joy in life and you're supposed to save your family but it's much more, much harder than that as, yeah. as we all know family is partly suffering and partly um, partly alarm and fear and worry and loss and uh, in other words the substance of life so it's not really separate from it's not something that makes you happy in life it's, yeah. it, it is life and what about what makes you saddest well I guess there are different kinds of sad there's the good kind of sad, the sort of wistful and melancholy and yearning and longing kind of sad that goes into a poem. And there's the <clears throat> the other kind, which is 
this sort of gnawing, self-doubting kind of sad, uh, the depressive kind of sad. I would say um, faulty neurochemistry makes me sad. <laughs> Your owner or too much people? coffee at the wrong time of day <laughs> might make me sad. <laughs> Here's the biologist coming yeah. back, yeah. <laughs> or neurologist. Yeah, regret. <laughs> you know the, the the things that you think about when your neurochemistry is not optimal. Those things make me sad. Uh, but then when your neurochemistry is suboptimal, everything is sad. Well, on that note, thanks for sharing your thoughts on on your. Uh, oh, I don't want to. I don't want to. <laughs> Now I'm gun shy about calling it a good book. <laughs> no, I like hearing that. <laughs> well, okay. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on a wonderful book of poetry, uh, No End in Strangeness, and on Canadian poetry and poetry in general. Thanks again. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Bruce Taylor, who lives in Wakefield, Quebec, with his family and spends time looking into ponds. Thanks again. Thank you. <laughs>